0: and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian.
1: Yeah, so today on the show we're going to talk a little about canola production, but we're going to get into a lot of other things as well, including the Ag PhD mailbag here in just a minute. If you've got any questions for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's happening on your farm, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or email us radio at agphd.com. So let's get to the agphd mailbag right now. It's
0: now mailbag
2: time with Brian and Darren.
0: All right, Brian, weed control, soil test, or ethanol. Where do you want to start? I don't care.
1: Whatever you want to fire away at. All right. Let's Go start. Ahead.
0: Let's start on a soil test right off the bat, or a series of them. They got this from Chris. He said, I've been watching, listening to your show. Since way back in 2012 when I went to college, it's made me think and research about what my agronomist tells me I should do. We raise a lot of seed corn. We are south of Sioux City. We started using chicken litter on farms that have been rented in the past and mined uh, nutrients out that we bought. We started doing this in 2017. I took my P1 up a little. My P2 is now very high, but still a low P1. Trying to figure out the best option for my high pH and what would be tying up my phosphorus
1: everybody's definition of high and very high will vary mine is not that you are very high on your p2 you're around 100 uh, maybe just a little bit over for p2 so to me a 100 on p1 is actually what i'm shooting for so i'm look that means we probably we probably have to be 150 or 200 on p2 that's what that's my goal it's it's so, interesting
0: brandon seed corn production i i just think there needs to be another look at what's going on with fertility. And I've been in a lot of those fields right in your area, Chris. And I I just question about some of the fertility recommendations that we shouldn't be doing a little bit more.
1: Well, here's the whole thing. When you're going for seed corn production, we're not talking about 300 bushel
0: corn. You're not removing a whole bunch, but you're also working with inbreds. And you've got these weak, weak plants that, to me, just scream for, I better be at the high level on P and K and a bunch of these nutrients because they don't have the greatest root system. They're not the best at extracting. They aren't as efficient as what your commercial hybrids are going to be. I don't know. I know there have been plenty of fertility tests on seed corn done in the past. I just think we need to take another look at it because I think we could do better.
1: Okay. So like in his samples, here are the two big things. One is variability. So there are areas where the fertility is real good. But then there are other areas in the same fields that are not so good. Just for example, he'll be up to six or seven on base saturation potassium in some spots, and that's, that's great. But then also just right near that, it might be four or three or whatever. So I, I'm just saying I, I would try to even those things out a little bit. That's the first thing I see. The second thing is the pH is high. Now don't feel like, hey, I have a high pH. There's just nothing I can do. There is there are things that you can do. First thing that I'm always thinking about, and especially in this this ground that's medium to heavy, is we got to make sure that the drainage is good. So as long as you have a good amount of tile there, and for both Darren and me, we've spent a lot of time in that area where Chris is from, make sure you have great tile. If you've got the tile situation taken care of, excellent. Now we move on to the next thing. And that next thing is, all right, if I want to lower that pH, I'm thinking about sulfur. And your sulfur levels are bad right now. So when you're picking sulfur sources, that's going to lean me toward picking... Uh, elemental sulfur rather than the sulfate form because when you have elemental sulfur and you have great drainage now over time you will have some hydrogen created out there you will you will acidify the soil just slightly I'm not saying that you're going to go nuts on this and you you don't need to put on a thousand pounds of elemental sulfur or anything but if you're putting on 50 or 100 pounds of elemental sulfur um, yeah, a lot of every, that ground
0: is really flat. Yep. I think the drainage is a little questionable in some of those yep. areas. Yep. And you know. And the other thing with seed corn production is you get a lot of compaction that you
1: got to deal with. Right. Now, and that could be car- causing part of the problem with lack of phosphorus availability as well. So I would be using starter fertilizer on the phosphorus end of things. I'm going to continue trying to work on getting the pH a little bit lower. And I think over time, things will get better. But just keep putting phosphorus on. And keep working on potassium where you actually need it. So anything less than a 6 or a 7 base saturation K for that inbred production is super important. Oh, last things, micronutrients. Your zinc levels are very low, but then I don't have readings for manganese, iron, copper, boron. Keep in mind that it's not just potassium when we talk about the standability. And, you know, when it's inbreds, they're weak, like Darren said. It's also manganese and copper. Those are huge for that stock quality.
0: Hey, the other thing, too, when you talk about seed corn production, so much of that is irrigated. And Chris doesn't make a comment here about irrigation, but I would strongly encourage you take a sample, not just of your soil, but also take a sample of your water Ooh, quality that's, a good point. that's going out through that irrigation. And yep. I wonder what's happening there. If That's
1: probably it. You're right. I didn't even think about that. I don't know why, but that's probably what's led to his IPH.
0: All right. Well, thanks for the question, Chris. We're certainly looking to to do more with seed corn production and learn more about what's going into that for fertility, what that crop actually needs. So we we'd sure appreciate any follow up questions or comments that you have, uh, Brian. To get uh, boy, I don't know if I got a quick enough one to get you to here.
1: I'll try to do it quick.
0: Oh, okay. So this is from Alan in South Dakota. He said he's got food plots. They've been overrun by thistles. He'd like to lightly disc and plant some sorghum in the spring, wondering what he could do as a pre-plant in front of sorghum. And also, he said he was told to use Milestone for the thistles and Atrazine or Outlook or Dual as a pre. Just wondering about that. Is that okay? And how long would you have to wait to plant sorghum if he did such a thing?
1: Okay. Well, Milestone is great for pastures. It is not safe for use in most crop fields, and you cannot use it in front of sorghum. Instead, just use a high rate of Roundup as a burn down to stop those thistles. Don't do tillage before you're going to do that, though. We want those root systems left intact. In terms of pre-sorghum herbicides, we usually talk about Outlook and Dual. Yes, atrazine can be used. I don't like it pre, though. I would prefer to spray it post. But anyway, Outlook and Dual are my pres. You just have to make sure that your, your sorghum is treated with something like Concept, so it won't hurt that sorghum. Also, I really like Verdict, which is premix of Sharpen and Outlook. And then you could come later... Uh, with your broadleaf killer post-emerge that's probably what i would do you can get some of the broadleaves get a lot of the grass early come back later get that that uh, that next shot on the broadleaves
0: thanks for the question alan we'll be right back with more ag phd radio
3: after this it's about time Applied at planting, new Zyway 3D fungicide from FMC delivers foliar disease protection from planting to harvest. Active ingredient flutriafol moves from the soil through the corn as it grows for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. For season-long protection, choose first-of-its-kind in-furrow Zyway 3D fungicide. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions.
4: Pentair Hypro 3D nozzles are your premier choice for fungicide applications. Syngenta fungicide application field trials have shown Hypro 3D nozzles provide a yield advantage of up to 10% over other nozzles, maximizing the return on your fungicide investment. Learn more at pentair.com hypro
3: start your crop off right with the germinator closing wheel from farm shop mfg our spike design excels in variable soils and shatters compaction plus the unique shoulder firmer encases the seed to maximize seed to soil contact order yours at farmshopmfg.com
2: You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck.
3: How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and Nerf bars? Gotta
2: have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky Herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy to handle formulation. <laughs> Goose deck Tow package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at OpenSkyHerbicide.com.
0: Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk a little about canola production. We get a lot of questions about pretty much about every crop I can think of, and one of them that we've gotten quite a bit of feedback on has been canola. A lot of growers interested in this. I know in Canada we get a lot of interest about canola, a lot of questions, and and even across the United States too. So we're talking canola today. We're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at eight four four. Forty-four Ag PhD got Tony on with us right now out in Montana, and Tony's got a pretty cool-looking website too. That if you get a chance, uh, when when you hear Tony speak a little bit, you may be interested in checking out what he's doing on his farm. Uh, Tony, is that okay to promote your website a little bit?
4: Yeah, go for it.
0: It's fastagmontana.com fastagmontana.com. You can find them on YouTube as well. I I do think, though, that it's pretty good to get out as much information as we can and try and connect with people that aren't on the farm and when they can see how we're doing it and how much we care about the land and our crops and and everything that's going on around our farms, it's important. So, Tony, when you look at canola, how big a deal is that in your rotation and why did you get started growing that crop?
4: Uh, It's about 25 to – 25% 25% to maybe a third of our crop. Um, kind of just depends on the year and our rotation throughout the whole farm, but really like to, you know, get it over every acre, at least every four years.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Is it something just to rotate out of the cereals or has this been a primary moneymaker for you?
4: Um, it's it's one, it's hit or miss in our area. We're a little drier. Uh, we really like the, you know, really don't have any other option for a Roundup Ready or a Liberty crop for different Chemical rotation around here, so that's a big one for us. And then it just you know gives us that flexibility on different modes of action. But uh, some years it'll out-yield our wheat acres, you know, if we're next to uh, next door neighbor fields and fields that way. Some years it's just a whole disaster because we got too hot during flowering and and then we're just kind of hoping to break even. So it's a typical farm problems, right? (laughs)
0: Yes. Yes. I was talking to a a soybean breeder just the other day in the South and he said, oh man, we got so many more challenges down here. And I said, no, we've got, we've got early frost. We've got late frost. You really can't manage around those very well. They just come. And, and also, you know, you look at the conditions in Montana, you don't often think about it, but it can get hot and awfully dry and it can also be really cold. So a lot of, a lot of challenge there. Yeah.
4: July 4th is usually full bloom for us. And we could have 100 degrees on July 4th or we could have 70 degrees. You know, it's just year to year is so different for that flowering season. So put a bunch of different crops and hope one of them hits, right?
0: Exactly. exactly. Now you mentioned this, uh, you don't really have a good Roundup Ready or Liberty Link option and this canola really brings that to the farm. What are you going after? Are you going after jointed goat grass? Are you going after cheat grass? What, what's the tough weed that you like to take out with this?
4: Um, it's, you know, buckwheat is, wild buckwheat's one we deal with a lot in our pulses, um, like panther and some of these now are really helping with that, but in the past, you might have just a wreck in your pulses with buckwheat, and then wheat, you have lots of options, but then if you wanted some sort of a broadleaf or oilseed, there's not, not great options, so, you know, being able to do a roundup early where that's small, we have no problem killing it, plus you throw some stinger in there. You really, really have some good options to clean up these fields.
0: Sure. Uh, okay. One other question. Let me shift back to your online presence. What kind of feedback do you get from your website and your YouTube channel and and all of your outreach? There is it mostly farmers uh, that are they're getting back to you? Is it non-farmers? Are you targeting anyone?
4: Um, it, it's kind of. I mean, it's probably majority farmers. I do get a lot of. Uh, I grew up on a farm, or I helped grandpa in high school, and you know, truck drivers, there, I mean, there's kind of a little bit of everything out there. But it's really hard to pinpoint exactly who it is. I can go back and look at, you know, age groups, but that's about it.
0: Yeah, it's always interesting to see who's who's checking things out. But, you know, honestly, everybody out there needs to learn a little bit more. And even for me, farming where I farm, I, I like seeing what's going on in Montana and what, what different challenges you guys are facing and try and learn from me as much as I can. Uh, Tony, thank you so much. Yep. Thanks for being on. Thanks for talking about what's going on your farm. Thanks for sharing everything online that you are as well too. You bet.
4: Thanks for having me. You
0: bet. Let's head over to North Dakota. We've got Pat Murphy with us. He's the president of the U.S. Canola Growers Association and Northern Canola Growers Association. Uh, Pat, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Hey, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Okay, so we're talking canola today, and I I just always find it interesting whenever I talk to you in from North Dakota. I'm like, okay, what's what are the acre? How are the acres going to sort out this year? Because, but you have a lot of crops that you can choose from up there.
6: We really do, yeah, we really do. You know, uh, canola's been a big crop, and uh, you know, there's a lot of soybeans moving in, and, and certain producers are growing corn and having success, and and uh, wheat's been good. So I mean, the, the guys have a lot of a lot of choices. So. It, it's kind of a nice, nice problem to have up here, really, and and uh, I think for the most part, we probably on uh, our farm, we probably, we probably like to grow about a fourth canola, and then maybe half wheat, and then see what what we want to do with that other fourth, and, and uh, see what we can make work. Sometimes pulses seem to work, and sometimes soybeans will work, and then you know we'll just see what happens. But we we do have a lot of
0: choices, so. Yeah, it keeps things interesting for sure. So, talk to us a little about canola. Where the canola that's grown in North Dakota, where does it end up? Is is it getting processed for for different uses here? Is it getting exported?
6: Uh well, I, the net effect on canola naturally is that we were a net in the United States is a net importer of canola. Uh, most of the canola grown in our area, which is in the in the mined area in Northwest, is is either going into the crush plants in Velva, or there's some in uh, Halock Minnesota, and there's one down in Anderlin. And uh, and then one thing that's been a market for us, uh, and I guess I've, I've kind of noticed it, is is our local elevator has been shipping out to the Viterra plant in uh, Warden, Washington, and they're they're buying a lot of coal out of this area too. So yeah, it's it's uh it it's going pretty well. I think I think you know naturally uh, we're importing canola from Canada. Is, you know, it's part of our uh, part of our needs in the U.S. because our needs have been growing pretty steady, and, and uh, so it's it's been it's been going pretty well for the most part. So,
0: what do you find the challenges being in your geography growing canola and being successful getting high yields?
6: Well, you know, we we shoot like the gentleman before you. We like we like to shoot if we can get it seeded early. Um, we've kind of, on our farm and, and generally in the area, we've kind of backed off from from getting out there and trying to seed it in late April, mid-April. Uh, we end up with a lot of cool soil temps, and there's nothing wrong with getting it seeded then. The problem we're encountering, and I think most people are, is uh, our, uh, our flea beetle seed treatment is wearing off before the canola gets big enough to fight them off. And if so if, you, if we're planting too early... Which is a good thing, but then you really got to be on the ball and make sure that you're uh, watching your flea beetles. And you may have to go and put an insecticide application on before you were probably ready to do that. You might still be planting your other crops, but you got to watch it because it it'll it'll clean them off pretty fast. But but yeah, early planning is something that we need to do to to get big yields. And uh, you know, it's just just. You know, but everything wants to be early, you know, so you just got to kind of mix it up a little bit. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Everything wants to go on early. You know, and uh, You know, you think about it, if this is uh, a fourth of your acres or, or a third of your acres, as it was for Tony in, in some cases, you know, it's an important crop and, and the markets are a really big deal. What do they look like this year? Are canola acres going to be up or down for you if the market's held well, steady? Well,
6: I'm, I'm guessing, uh, you know, most, most guys are – Kind of stick to the rotation pretty much, and that's pretty much what we'll do. Uh, but yeah, the price run up has been pretty nice. We're, you know, I think I just looked at ADM Velva, I think for January, pushing twenty dollars a hundred, and oh. that's uh, that's that's we haven't seen them levels for a long time. Yeah. So uh, and naturally, uh, some of us like myself maybe sold too early, but that's okay. You know, we we thought we got a good price and. And we're happy with that. So I, I think that'll drive some acres because the new crop bids are pretty decent right now, too. So, um, you know, I'm thinking acres will probably be up, but, you know, not not maybe as drastic as a guy might think, As guys do want to stick to your rotations.
0: Sure, and sure. And
6: you know, one thing that's probably working against us a bit right now,
0: if you, if you had any pessimism at all,
6: and that, you really shouldn't because it's just that time of year. We're, we're, we're extremely dry.
0: Yeah, the dry weather is certainly challenging this year. Uh, we'll be right back after this.
6: A lot goes into keeping
3: a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected, and yields higher even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit DelaroComplete.us today.
0: Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe next spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed treatment from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking to have your seed pretreated treated with Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. When it comes to
2: commanding herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Panther SC, an animal when it comes to speed of control and long residual on a broad spectrum of tough broadleaf weeds like tail, palmer amaranth, and water hemp. And did we mention convenience? Panther SC works in pre-plant, pre-emerge, and post-harvest systems and keeps your rotation options open. New Farm and Panther SC, here to help.
5: Resistant weeds got you
7: down? Knock out tough to kill herbicide resistant weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Water Hemp with Tough 5EC. Manufactured by Beltram Crop Protection, Tough 5EC is a selective contact herbicide for post emergence control of actively growing broadleaf weeds. Add Tough 5EC to your post emergence tank mix for enhanced control with no concerns about residual or carryover injury. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit beltramusa.com. Together, we can get tough on weeds. Always read and follow label instructions.
5: Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy, all the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. You're looking for soybeans that give you the yield you want. But when it comes to fighting your toughest weeds, you also need flexibility. Introducing Extend Flex Soybeans Elite Genetics with triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate. The yield you want, the choice you need. Learn more at ExtendFlexSoy.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking about canola production. Also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. All right. We, uh, we kind of got a view from Montana and North Dakota. Let's head out to Idaho. We got Ray with us right now. Raymond, how are you doing today?
7: Doing well. How are you doing?
0: Good. Good. All right. We were talking with Tony up in Montana and he was talking about how important it is having that canola as a rotational tool and he could do some weed control if he used the Roundup Ready or the Liberty Link version. Uh, where does canola fit into your operation?
7: We use it in a big way as uh, weed control in our operation. We are a seed farm and so we mostly grow perennial grass and wildflowers. And canola is a really useful tool as we rotate out perennials and um, get a few years of Roundup ready or uh, also use Liberty Link in there so that we can get control on especially some troublesome perennial weeds. Um, But it's also a really big part of our rotation for uh, having that tap root and getting some uh, good uh, penetration past uh, the plow pan on any existing plow pan we have and other soil health. So really important as a rotational tool for us.
0: Hey, talk about growing perennial grasses and wildflowers. What are your weed control options like there? I know you talk about Roundup and Liberty as being used to clean things up, and they certainly can do that. I was just thinking, wow, and they don't have any residual either, so it's not going to ding up your perennial grasses the next thing you're growing.
7: Yeah, so um, we actually are pretty limited on our grass seed production. Um, We do quite a bit of turf grass, and so um, there is some uh plant back issues that you got to worry about with some of the soil active uh stuff that we'll do for um our annual annual broadleaf weeds especially but uh we're, we're pretty limited on what what we can do especially on the native grasses there's just not a lot labeled for them chemically and so starting out with a clean slate is really important and so that's that's where the canola really shines for us
0: That's a pretty neat market, what you're doing out there. Where does your product go to then when you're growing uh, seed grasses and wildflowers? Are you shipping worldwide?
7: The turf grasses go worldwide. Um, A majority of the world's Kentucky bluegrass is actually grown in the Pacific Northwest. and So we're shipping uh, all over the United States, Europe, China, Canada. Um, But then all of the native species that we do are primarily going to land somewhere within 250 miles of our farm. Um, so those will go into roadways, um, back into burned out areas in California, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho after wildfires and rehabilitating, uh, rangeland in those areas as well.
0: All right. So you've got canola in the rotation to take out some of those tough weeds and tough perennials. Do you run into volunteer canola issues in those future crops?
7: It's not, uh, huge issue for us. Volunteer canola is, uh, it does come like crazy, but for the most part with those, uh, crops, we do have a, a pretty good, uh, broadleaf spectrum that, that will take the canola out. Um, especially some of the, some of the chemicals that are no longer, um, real active on some of our problem weeds, uh, that you can get pretty cheap now are pretty easy to, uh, Take out canola, which is also a problem with canola, uh, just because of the drift uh, factor that we have with with uh, some of those getting caught in, uh, caught in the wind. So,
0: sure, sure. All right, where you're at in Idaho, are, is your farm entirely dryland, or are you irrigated where you're at?
7: We're entirely dryland. We're uh, for about three thousand feet elevation, and we have about a twenty-two to twenty-five inch rainfall average. So it's pretty good pretty good dry land farming.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, okay, so when you're looking at canola then, how about fertility? Are you saving most of that fertility work that you do for your grass rotation, or are you putting fertility out in the canola crop too?
7: We're putting quite a bit of fertility out on a canola crop too. Canola really likes uh, to have quite a bit of, especially nitrogen to it, and so um, a, a really good candidate for where we might go to uh, canola is somewhere that we've been putting a lot of nitrogen in the past, like a bluegrass field production, um, hopefully have a little bit left over, and then uh, we could even go to something that we will be wanting fertilizer uh, higher in the future. We don't do as much fertilizing as we used to, we've gone almost completely uh, no-till, um, and so We're getting that higher organic matter and being able to cut back on on the fertilizer for most of our crops. And so uh, we are able to utilize some that isn't used by each crop.
0: Sure, sure. All right, so the canola you're growing, is it winter canola? Is it spring-planted stuff?
7: We actually grow both. We'll do winter and spring canola here. Um, It kind of depends on the goal of the rotation. Winter canola works really good if you need to uh, take a two years to get, like, say, a bluegrass out. Um, you can spray the bluegrass out in the fall, and then maybe till it out in the spring. Maintain that tillage through the through the summer um, to to really make sure it doesn't come back because it it tends to want to. And then you can uh, do the the fall canola following that as a plants in late august early september we've kind of gotten away from that on our farm with the going to full no-till and so when we use canola we on our operation are generally going just a spring and then sometimes if we're really after weed control we'll go two years in a row or a canola wheat canola rotation
0: very interesting very interesting so what kind of growing season did you have in 2020 in your part of idaho
7: Uh, Our growing season was actually pretty good this year. It was a little bit longer than normal. We had snow um, coming off in early April, and we were able to get quite a bit of uh, field work done in April. Got the canola planted in April, which was really good for the crop, give it a, a good jump start. And then we had some pretty dry weather through the end of April and all through May, and big rains throughout June and early July. Which was really good for all of our crops. Really uh, helped the canola bloom and maintain that bloom. The only problem is that those late rains brought some hailstorms, which shattered out a bunch or uh, knocked off the tops of the canola on a bunch of guys. So that was a little bit uh, difficult for us, but it was pretty localized damage.
0: One last question for you now on the native grass production. I have to imagine this was a high demand year for you with all the
7: wildfires. It was uh, actually kind of a medium demand year. We were actually expecting a lot more demand. I think that one of the problems is there was a lot of money at the state uh, level that didn't come in in tax revenues and also that was getting spent on other stuff. And so I think that next year is probably going to be hopefully coming back a little better with with better tax revenues and hopefully less COVID-related expenses. But we're kind of at the mercy of uh, whatever's in the government coffers on those. Ends. <laughs> That's about where ninety percent of our uh, supply will go. It's gotcha. Some form of government. All
0: right. Well, Raymond, thank you so much. Really appreciate talking about your operation a little bit. Thanks for for the information on the canola as well. And and good luck to you here.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Brian, uh, got a mailbag question, and
1: I. Oh wait, wait! Before we oh. get back to mailbag, let's finish up just talking about canola sure. a little bit. Sure since we only have a little bit of time before our, our last break here, I, I would just say this. You know, for Darren and me, we're kind of the weed of the wheat guys, so we get lots of questions about, well, how am I going to control these different weeds out there? And when we get to crops other than corn or soybeans or wheat, it just becomes a lot more challenging because you don't have near the herbicide options. And that's where it has been nice to have Clearfield canola, to have Liberty Link canola, to have Roundup Ready canola, because pre-emerge not a tremendous amount we're typically recommending. We just don't have all these options. So usually it's putting trifluralin down and then we follow up with, like I say, if it's Roundup Ready, we're going Roundup. If it's Liberty Link, we're going Liberty. If it's Clearfield, we're going Beyond. And you know what? Right there, that kind of summarizes most everything we talk about on a regular basis beyond that i would say a lot of people are using clethodim post-emerge for grass control or even potentially volunteer corn control but yeah it's it, it is a little challenging when you start raising these crops you've got to think about weed control because if you don't get the weed control taken care of it doesn't matter all these other great things that you do you just don't maximize production all right we are going to get back to your questions in the ag phd mailbag coming up next
5: I'll take predictability, where I can get it. With their CropWise Seed Selector, NK Seeds combines local knowledge and local data to show me where their seed fits.
7: And even
1: where it doesn't. Because out here, predictability is hard to come by. And success matters. Find
2: your seed at nkseeds.com.
0: back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. I'm going to dive back into the Ag PhD mailbag here. And one of the big topics right now has been all the rebate programs that are out there. And certainly Bear had... The biggest one ever last year. They've got a huge program again this year. Corteva's got a huge program. Just There's a ton of them out there, and it affects a lot of products. So we're getting a lot of questions about that. Doug has one, though. He said, Bear still has not sent me my 2020 rebate. It's kind of a joke. Just lower the price. We know that the rebate is already added into the price up front anyway, so just give us the money up front.
1: Not exactly. And here's the way that I look at this whole thing. If there are just straight out rebates, then yes, it basically is added in up front. And I would, I mean, I'm a farmer too, and I'd way rather have the money up front. But what Bear did is they basically tied products in, and the more products you bought, the more dollars you got. So they're really trying to incentivize you and me to buy more of their products that way. And when the rebates net their products out less than Any of the generic options out there, um, that's way above and beyond what they've ever done before. Okay, so I'm not trying to justify any companies' rebate programs or anything else. I'm just explaining the reasons why they do it and what the logic is behind the whole thing. And all I really care about at the end of the day. For me, on my farm, is getting a lower price for the very best stuff I can possibly get. So it's it works out for me agronomically and economically, and I'm sure you would like the same thing. With Bear's program, the way they set this up is also something I don't like, and that's where basically you, the farmer, have to go log in and get your money pulled back out. So the reason why they haven't sent you your money could be that you haven't requested your money. And that's unlike the typical programs in the past where the retailer submits something and then, in effect, requests your money for you. They wouldn't allow retailers to do that with this new program. That's the part that I am very much opposed to because now as a farmer, I got to go log in. I I just did it the other day for the bear thing, by the way. And it wasn't even me. I just told my uh, guy that I was working with, my agronomist that I'm working with on the thing. I said, hey, take care of this for me. Here, log into my account. Here's my stuff and just get the check sent. And within about two minutes, I had an email saying, oh, check's on the way now. So either call up your retailer and your agronomist or just go log into the system yourself and you'll see that your money's there and then you just request a check that's all you have to do
0: all right thanks for the question we really appreciate that yeah it is it is a big deal because this time of year as you're looking at crop input pricing and that type of thing those rebates are are huge this year Thanks yep. for the question. Got this from Shane. He's in Nebraska, and he said, here's the first farm that I've rented to farm on my own. I'm sending you the soil samples. I'm planning on putting lime as well as map. Just wondering what you think about that and any other considerations you might have. First of all, Shane, congratulations. That's awesome. I'm really happy for you that they're getting to do this thing. and. Yeah, I know. On some of the rented ground, and I didn't look through all the samples, I just passed them on to Brian, but I know there there are some challenges there anytime you're renting ground and, and how much can you invest. My first question would be, what kind of agreement do you have on the rental? Have you got it for long term? Because you're talking about putting lime out there. That's something that's going to probably take, uh, where you're farming in Nebraska, probably three years for that to really fully release, depending on what kind of lime source you get. And if you've only got it for one year, you may be investing into somebody else's pH fix down the road. So I'm curious about that. The other thing you talk about, putting out map, here's another thing that if you're going to broadcast it out there, you're not going to be able to recover all that right away, which is fine if you're farming that for the long term. But if it's a shorter term deal, then then that's a different deal.
1: Okay. You asked the question like two minutes ago. So ask it again. Lime and what else? Lime and map okay, he's putting thank out you. there. <laughs> all right. So on the lime- Am I making
0: it more difficult for you, Brian?
1: On the lime, I well, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm getting old. (laughs) Hard to remember from two minutes ago. Anyway, on the lime side of things, I would just say normally we see a lot more inconsistency in soil than what I'm seeing in your tests. A lot of your pHs are basically 5.6 to 5.9. So when you see that, then that makes me feel much better about applying lime across the whole field. But be careful, we just don't want you over-liming. That's probably the number one thing that I would say there. But yes, lime's obviously going to help. And on the MAP or DAP, whatever you choose to use, like on our farm this year, by the way, there was a phosphorus shortage. We weren't able to get MAP, we were able to get DAP. So not my favorite in our soils that are a little on the high pH side. I prefer MAP in those cases. Uh, But for you, it doesn't make any difference. MAP or DAP, whatever it is, but get more phosphorus out there. And then also use a starter phosphorus too. So it's great to build up your overall soil levels, but it's also important to feed that plant early on when the soils are cold. Phosphorus usually isn't very available. So we like to use a low salt starter uh, in addition to whatever we're doing on the broadcast side or on the strip till side. But yeah, I mean, he's two or three parts per million on phosphorus. You need a lot. I'll be honest with you. My goal on P1 phosphorus is 100, and I want a minimum of 50 or 70. So we're, we're obviously a long ways from that. And that part is slightly variable. You've got a few that are 30 to 40, but then a lot of them are two or four. So got a lot of work to do on that phosphorus thing. Now, when you're renting ground, especially when you're young and you don't have lots of money behind you, then it is more important to band in those cases. So that's where I kind of come back to. If you want to do a little bit broadcast, fine, but I, I'm 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 a big believer in strip till or putting a, a quite a bit on with the planter. Just make sure you don't put too much on right in furrow. You might have to go two by two with some of it because you definitely need phosphorus. And by the way, you definitely need zinc and sulfur as well. Those two nutrients, very, very low. The zinc, you're at like 0.5 parts per million. So that's hurting your yield right now. And your sulfur, you're 10 parts per million or less on most samples. That's also hurting your yield today.
0: So yeah, and rented ground, I sure like banding fertilizer. I I like doing things that way and try and extract as much as you can. Just... Yeah, you have to see what you do. Like I say, I don't know what your arrangement is. Maybe maybe you're farming your dad's ground and he's only going to rent it to you forever and you can just do all kinds of long-term things. I hope you can. Thanks for the question. This one comes from Abdul. He said, you guys were talking about foliar fertilizer. I'm wondering, can we, can we construe that foliar is a substitute of conventional soil feeding of fertilizers no. or is it something you do in addition?
1: In addition. So we do want to be working on the soil all the time, but... To supplement that, it's good to have at least some foliar fertilizer going out. Quite frankly, on a fairly regular basis, we have found, and just that's where we use plant tissue analysis to kind of see how we're doing overall with that plant. I like putting my money more in the soil than I do foliar, or put it this way. I want 90 95% of my, my money on fertilizer going in the soil rather than foliar, but foliar can be a nice way to supplement it.
0: All right. Get this from Brian. He said, you guys were talking about how there's normally only one ear of corn on a stalk. I must misunderstand this trait called flex ear. Aren't there a few hybrids that easily fill out a second, though smaller, ear per stalk? You know what, Brian? Most hybrids are going to fill out one, and a lot of it's going to come down to fertility, row spacing, and sunlight. If you're getting tons of sunlight, like on the outside edge of the field – Many times you'll see a double ear on that outside row or two, but once you get out into the field, you don't see it quite as often. Yeah, but
1: explain what uh, flex ear does not mean it's going to flex to have more ears. It's to flex to size that one ear that yeah. you actually have.
0: Yeah, a lot of hybrids, what you'll see is though they, if they've got some degree of ear flex to them, they'll either flex how many kernels around the ear will have or how many kernels long that ear will get. So talking with corn breeders just recently here about some of the new hybrids that are coming out for the 2022 growing season and what they're seeing in the research this year. And yeah, ha- have some that just really big around ears, 20 kernels around, 22 kernels around, and so so forth and, and others that only make 14 around and out yield them and you know you talk about that well wait a minute I thought uh, this had 22 around how did it not beat the one with 14 around and they said well there's a lot of different ways you can flex you can flex for kernel depth you can flex for kernel length all those kinds of things so yeah there's there's a lot of things that go into having those flex ear type products and most of the time it's not putting on a second ear. I got another question I want to get to right after the break. This one's coming from Murray up in Ontario. He said, Brian was talking about renewable fuels last month, and he made two statements that seem to contradict each other. We'll get into that just a little bit more and tackle more of your questions right after this.
3: It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with High Striker treated nitrogen. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen from conception to completion. There's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com
5: Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy, all the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com.
3: You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely.
2: Tailgate step and Nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky Herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy to handle formulation. <laughs> Goose deck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. Acre to acre, year to year, generation to generation, nobody scrutinizes performance like you do. And acre to acre, year to year, generation to generation, the consistent performance of ASGRO brand soybeans helps to keep your profitability out in front, offering leading agronomic expertise and 100% exclusive genetics for strong yield potential. Ask your dealer how much further you can grow when Asgrow leads the way. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions.
0: back you're listening to ag phd radio we're right in the middle of the ag phd mailbag time we still have we still have time for your call yet on today's show at 844 44 ag phd also you can send us an email radio at agphd.com. that's exactly what murray did up in ontario and i talked about this just a little bit before the break uh murray said brian made a couple of contradicting statements so i just want to get to this he said Listen to your podcast many times on ethanol and renewable fuels. It aired on November 5th, if anyone wants to check that out on the podcast. Jeff Bruin spoke about how. Without biofuels, using 40% of the corn crop and 20% of the soybean crop, we wouldn't have seen the good crop prices that we did in the 2000s. Brian then mentioned the fact that it's not a food versus fuel issue, which has me confused. How did the bio industry use that much supply up and not have it removed from food supply? Now, I do understand that the byproducts of the biofuel production are used as livestock feed as DDGs. Yes. But doesn't there have to be a reduction in the supply of feed grains to cause the market price to increase? I'm very much in favor of biofuels. It just seems to be a contradiction between these two statements.
1: Okay, and here's what I say every single time this food versus fuel thing comes up. With corn ethanol, they are only taking out the starch. They leave the nutrients in that gets fed to the livestock. So basically you've got all this protein, all these nutrients that are fed to the livestock and so now what a person could do if they want to simply replace that starch if you just need more starch in that diet for the livestock. So another again the only thing that came out when they they were making ethanol you can simply take roughage you can take uh, let's say it's residue that's left out in your field like corn stalks or whatever very easy to replace that starch so to take corn stalks and make ethanol out of it very hard to do not cost effective it would have to be government subsidized and no one wants government subsidies going to these fuels by the way government subsidies do go to oil today which i think is ridiculous but Anyway, uh, when there are no government subsidies going to ethanol and there are to oil, something's wrong. But anyway, with the corn ethanol process, if you want to replace one and get back to 100%, literally everything we had to begin with... All you need to do is get some more starch back into the system. Very easy, very inexpensive to do if you chose to do it by adding some of those stalks that are just laying out stalks and and leaves and everything that are laying out in your field after corn harvest. So that's the only point that I would make. And if you do not do that, then yes, of course, we have lowered the overall total feedstuffs that are going to the livestock. Okay, But I, I just... I I do not run into a lot of farmers who say, "Yep, I love having all that residue after 250 bushel corn. That's fantastic." No, most people say, "Yeah, I could I could live with a little less residue." And there are even a lot of the corn breeding companies that are trying to come up with shorter hybrids that produce less residue yet produce the same kind of yield. So, anyway, I that that was my whole point with the thing.
0: All right, Brian, got some soil tests here sent from Troy in northeast Iowa. He said he's in a corn-corn-soybean rotation, raising 250, 275 bushel corn, 75, 80 bushel beans. But his question is, I've got single-digit part-per-million manganese. And I know you've talked about don't put on too much manganese in one shot, so I'm wondering what you think. And I, I looked at the soil test, brand real quick, and where he's got the low manganese numbers, they're on DTPA tests. That's the extraction method used for that, which normally doesn't show up very high for manganese. It's, it's nor a little different than the Malik. But the other thing that I noticed, though, is the pH is 7.1, 7.2, wherever he's got those low parts per million. On our farm, if we've got higher pHs, so above 6.5 for sure, we see lower part per million manganese show up on DTPA tests. So I wonder if he's got a similar situation to what we've got.
1: Yep, I know. I the, the more I've looked at it and the more I've studied it over the last 10 years – the more i do not believe in the dtpa test for manganese i it doesn't correlate almost and here's where i'm going with this so the last 3 years now we have really looked close at yield versus soil test information and there is a point for each nutrient or different nutrient ratios where basically things get better and things get worse okay with manganese we find no correlation soil test to yield with the DTPA test. So now I'm interested to do that with the Malik test because I believe there is a correlation. And so what I'm trying to say here is I don't believe your numbers. I don't believe the DTPA numbers for manganese. There may be manganese out in your field. It may not be available right now. It may not uh, show up here. I just don't know. So if I was going to do some manganese, and we a lot of times do, and we pick up new ground, we'll just make sure we're throwing out 20 pounds of manganese sulfate or 50 pounds, something like that. Or we will use a little bit of manganese in the starter. I really like doing that on, on pretty much everything because manganese is very important for emergence. So I would look at it more that way. And then I would consider maybe running a, uh, a Malik 3 test. So we're going to start doing more with Malik 3 here this next year. We'll be talking about it more, a little bit more this winter, but definitely more
0: as we go into next fall. All right. Thanks for the questions. Really appreciate that. I got some more soil tests here, Brian, about a specific issue. This one's from Joe in East Central, or I'm sorry, from Michael in East Central, Illinois. He said, I've got concerns about our high magnesium soils. Our base saturation tests are running 25 to 30%. We've got farms that are pattern tiled and still remain tight in nature. Now, from watching your show, one product that you've talked about using in these situations is gypsum, but our cost is really high, between 40 and $60 a ton, with uh, recommendations of using a ton or two tons per acre. Our, thought are, our thoughts are this, how aggressive do you get on gypsum, do we, do we switch to something like pelletized gypsum that are even more expensive, but you can use lower rates? Uh, is there anything we could do now, spreading in the winter or spring ahead of next year's crop, or strip-till, and 15 in, or strip-till corn and 15-inch no-till soybeans?
1: Okay, I would also take a look at elemental sulfur. You actually have a fair amount of calcium out there. Uh, let's see, it depends on the soil test. I'm looking at 1,800 parts per million, 2,500 parts per million of calcium, uh, I don't, oh yeah, I've got a, there are a whole bunch that are around 2,000 plus for parts per million on calcium. So where I'm going with this is if gypsum is too expensive, you could try a little bit if you want to, but if gypsum's too expensive, the way I look at it is you're low on sulfur right now anyway. So you're at five parts per million, nine parts per million, that's way too low. So getting sulfur out there, number one is going to help your yield. And number two, you may flush some of that magnesium out. If you can create magnesium sulfate, well, that's Epsom salt. That'll flush out of your soil. So you might actually find that using a little bit of elemental sulfur, and I'm not saying you have to get nuts, but use a little elemental sulfur, that actually could end up helping your yield in your particular case. So those would be the options. I'll also say when we talk about high magnesium levels, Yes, it can hurt yield and yes, would I like to have it lower? Sure. But it's not like the first thing. So when I look at your soil tests, I don't see everything on here that I want to see. Um, And you've got a couple of tests where I do see pretty much everything. But where I'm going with this is let's look at all the nutrients. Try to do everything you can to fix everything else. Raise a better crop. That's going to kick out more organic acids in the soil because that's what plant roots do. The more roots you have, the more acids kicked out, and the more that's going to hopefully free up some of that magnesium that is is out there and maybe over a long period of time, lower that a little bit. But the other big thing is we just want more yield. And when I look at your soil tests and I see, okay, zinc's low, phosphorus in quite a few of these is low, uh, let's see. I'm looking on potassium. I think potassium is low. Yeah, you get. Yep. All your potassium is low. Uh, boron is low. Sulfur is low. Copper is low. So I look at all that and I go, all right. Well, I want to maybe spend some money working on that magnesium thing. I'm much more concerned about everything else. And again, the sulfur source I'm going to pick would be elemental sulfur rather than uh, some sulfate form do that and that's going to help you as well so that's really where my focus would be rather than getting too hung up on gypsum
0: all right thanks for the questions there are a lot of good questions today we got a few more we didn't get to we'll try to oh
1: hey one one last thing sorry uh on elemental sulfur for this last one don't go nuts don't put a thousand pounds out there just put a little bit out we're not trying to dramatically lower ph we just want to feed the crop Sorry.
0: All right, we didn't get to all the Ag PhD mailbag questions today. We'll try to get it, get those all caught up here later in the week. Thanks to thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.